Hello and welcome to another edition of Wilderness Wanderings. I am your host, David Nolan. I sincerely hope you have been blessed by our study for the last few weeks as we have journeyed through the wilderness of sin with the prophet Elijah. Now just to recap the last few weeks, Elijah has been under attack for the act of declaring God's authority over Israel against the pagan practices instituted by King Ahab and his queen Jezebel. He now has a death warrant issued for him, and Ahab is now hiding on Mount Sinai, hundreds of miles south of Israel. Emotionally and spiritually, Elijah is tired, scared, and depressed. All along the way, God has tried to remind Elijah of several key factors that are eternally true about God's relationship to Israel and to Elijah himself. He has reminded Elijah of his provision, his perseverance, his power, his presence, his protection, and his providence. And now we come to the last reminder, which addresses the heart of Elijah's complaint. Elijah has stated twice now, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. As if God didn't hear him the first time 40 days earlier. Since apparently God's presence wasn't enough for Elijah's comfort, God reminded him of his people. In 1 Kings 19, verse 18, he says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that had not kissed him. There has been a disturbing trend among professed believers that has gone for several decades, unabated, and strikes at the heart of the church. I've seen it over and over again throughout my years as a Christian, and even before I came to faith. In fact, it is a trend that is largely responsible for why I didn't come to faith sooner as a child. I had debated various theologians and secularists about the issue, and each time I have come away amazed at the naivete of those who not only hold this particular belief and practice it, but loudly vocalize it to the point that some elements of the church herself have come to accept it and allow such professed believers to continue in the belief that by simply being content with a, quote, profession of Christ as Savior, I am referring to the belief of those people that I like to call fringe believers. These are people who claim to have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They claim to believe in God. They may even read their Bible daily. They might even be what we call CEO Christians, darkening the doors of the church on Christmas and Easter only. The problem is that they live their lives in spiritual isolation. They espouse the belief that they don't need the church. They don't want the fellowship. They say they don't need someone telling them what to believe, that the Bible is enough for them. I must confess, even I have been through times in my own spiritual walk where this was true of my own relationship with God and the church. But these were also times in my spiritual life that was characterized by anger, confusion, and depression. For two years, from 1995 to 1997, I went through a wilderness wandering period of my own, 
in which I outright rejected the bride of Christ. It didn't take long for this spiritual isolation to manifest itself in physical isolation, as I dropped out of college and moved out of state to a city I had only been to once in recent memory. Eventually, this physical isolation made it easy for me to dive into self-destructive habits of ungodly relationships and alcoholism. At one point, I reflected on what drove me into that isolation period. I mean, I had been a four-time missionary across the country and around the world by this time, including the summer of 1995. I'd been preaching in pulpit supply across southern Louisiana. I was often invited to sing specials at various congregations. At one point, I started allowing this attention to swell my chest a bit, and I would find myself raising my spiritual nose a bit higher in the air. Until I started to notice that others were not so enthusiastic about my, quote, spiritual experience as I was. My pride led me to silently pass judgment on other believers for not being as close to God as I was. Nobody I knew had my commitment. Nobody cared about my dreams and my goals for the kingdom of God. My spiritual walk became all about me, and I began to feel alone and isolated. So I started building up walls, brick by brick, shutting people out, until finally I was truly alone. What I didn't realize at the time was that I was shutting God out as well. I could have been so arrogant as to say that the church shut me out. For a long time, I did just that. My pride would not allow me to accept the fact that I had gotten myself in over my head and was digging a hole for myself so deep that the only thing left to do was bury myself with my own self-pity. It took me years before I finally realized I was consumed by my dreams and goals instead of pursuing God's dreams and goals for my life, or rather, His life in me. After all, it is his kingdom, is it not? And in some ways, Elijah experienced some of the same emotional conflict. As you recall, Elijah became so despondent that he just, quote, sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Now that's the words of a man with his mind in the right place, isn't it? He has an evil queen who is hell-bent on killing him herself, and he runs out of town and finally just decides he wants to die? Why didn't he just stay in Israel and let her finish the job herself? It's amazing how discouragement can cloud your judgment if you let it get the best of you. But why does Elijah feel this way? I don't think it's the threat of death that haunts him. He has proven that he can deal with the reigning powers. Elijah made his first mistake in Beersheba, and then voiced his emotional state once he got to Mount Horeb. In 1 Kings 19.3, he says, He was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, the southern kingdom, And he left his servant there. 
he left his only companion in Judah. Granted, he guaranteed safety for his servant under the reign of the righteous king Jehoshaphat of Judah. But the problem came at the beginning of the next verse when, quote, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He went alone. And once he got to Mount Horeb, God asked him quite plainly, Elijah, what are you doing here? Twice the question is asked. Twice the same answer is given verbatim, as if God didn't hear it the first time. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. In other words, Elijah's little pity party could very well have sounded like this today. God, I have been so faithful to you and your church. Ha! They don't care. I'm the only one who does, and they want to get rid of me. Well, God's first response was one of power. The mountains trembled, the stones broke apart, fire appeared out of the earth, and the voice of God whispered in the wind. God was reminding him that he wasn't alone. The one and only God was making his presence known to Elijah. But obviously that wasn't enough for Elijah because his response was the same as before. And God addresses every complaint he has. God's response in my own paraphrased version, First, let me get rid of that pesky king and queen that are chasing you down. Consider them as good as dead. Second, I'm going to put a new king in place that will get that foreign god out of my people's midst. And finally, I'm going to bring you a new student so that you can pass your legacy on to them. Oh, and by the way, in case you forgot, there's 7,000 other people in Israel who are still faithful to me. To understand why this is an important reminder, you have to look back right before the account of Obadiah's confrontation with Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18. And it says, And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for it came about when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave, and provided them with bread and water. Now, once Obadiah encountered Elijah, he even tells him that he has hidden the prophets of the Lord in a cave. This is in verse 13. So right there, Elijah knew there were others out there like him. Yes, Jezebel was coming after him like she went after the other prophets and killed them. But the death threat was not what disheartened Elijah. It was the loneliness. Isolation from the fellowship of other believers can destroy the faith and the heart of the followers of Christ. And the writers of Hebrew knew this all too well. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 through 25, it says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, 
and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Therein is the heart of fellowship. First, you must be reconciled. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Those are the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 verses 23 and 24. If you need to seek forgiveness from a brother or a friend, seek it with your whole heart of repentance. If you need to forgive someone who has hurt you, do so quickly. Forgiveness does not mean that you condone the behavior. It means you hold that offense no longer to account. The debt is wiped clean from the ledger. Secondly, we need to be repentant. Just because you bathe one day doesn't mean you don't need to bathe again. We all get dirty. Life is dirty. We fall on our faces in the mud and mire of existence and need to be cleaned on a regular basis, both heart and mind. When David sinned with Bathsheba and Nathan exposed him for the adulterous, murdering liar that he was, David fell on his face in repentance. Here was a man who had already been declared as a man after God's own heart. His words of repentance are recorded as this. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That's Psalms 51 verse 2. Next, we need to be reminded... If there's one thing in my own life that I treasure, it's the reminder of my faith that is shared by others around me. I love the fellowship of the saints because it helps me to remember continuously the hope I have in this world, the hope that I serve a God who loves me and will always be faithful and to not leave me alone in my trials. And finally, we need to be relational. The Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation. Encouragement doesn't come from within. Love is not an isolated emotion. Love is an active state of doing. By definition, encouragement is the act of giving courage to another person. Godly encouragement is the granting of the courage to love as Christ loved even in the face of opposition. And you can't get that when you're living your Christian life on your own. In the spring of 1997, something happened that changed my life. In April that year, the Reverend Billy Graham had come to town. 
Now, I did not attend the crusade that year, but his influence at that time was still felt in my life today. Over the course of that week, several believers of different backgrounds began relating to me in ways that I had not remembered in a long time. At lunch on Sunday, a young Messianic Jewish lady named Renee came outside where I was sitting and started reading her Bible and praying. I politely got up and went inside, not wanting to be anywhere around her at that moment. Later that afternoon, as I was walking to my bus stop, she was having her daily afternoon walk around the block at our mutual workplace, and she politely started sharing her faith with me as I walked on. The next day, a young man named Michael sat down next to me at work and politely handed me a small 2 by 3 inch scripture card. He even graciously said if I didn't want it, I could give it back. I politely kept it and I put it on my keyboard that day. The next day, I was offered a ride to the bus stop by a young Pentecostal lady named Cookie. I know she was Pentecostal because of the preacher she had on the radio in the car. And she always had a lovely smile and wonderful sense of humor. One of the kindest people I ever knew. On Wednesday, the next day, a Lutheran gentleman named Mark had picked me up and gave me a ride to the bus stop, and he would challenge me in my habit of fellowship with the assembly. Over and over again, God used the climate of San Antonio at that time to bring different people into my life to gently draw me back into fellowship with him. But one night that week, I had my usual bender and woke up later than usual, heavily hungover, grabbed the only clean shirt I could find and threw it on and picked up what I thought was my day planner, shoved it in my backpack, hurried out the door to the bus stop to work. Got to my station at the call center, sat down and began taking calls. It wasn't long that a young lady named Sarah, that I had had my eye on for a few months, but was too shy to talk to, sat down beside me and pulled out this large binder. Apparently, she had noticed my shirt, which, unbeknownst to me at the time, was one of my college Christian t-shirts. So she thought it was safe to sit down next to me and start talking to me about the material in her binder because she was a counselor at the Billy Graham Crusade. During a call, I decided I would try to change the subject or ignore her while she worked and pull out my day planner and only to discover what I had picked up was my covered Bible instead. It was at this point that God finally got my attention. Later that night, I made a call to a local Baptist church around the corner from my apartment and planned to attend that coming Sunday. Not having a vehicle at the time, I had to take a chance on whether or not the church had a bus. And I was assured they did, so I made an appointment to be picked up that Sunday morning. That Sunday, every hymn spoke of a returning home, which led into a sermon on the prodigal son and ended with the hymn, Lord, I'm Coming Home. I closed my eyes that day in silent reflection and quietly whispered the words of that hymn to myself as a prayer, with tears building in my eyes. A few weeks later, a woman who was sitting on that same row with me mentioned that she remembered that day because she could see in her words, God was all over me. 
I had a chat with the music minister that day named Glenn, who became one of my dear friends, and he invited me to the choir practice that day. And I thought I had nothing better to do. And the rest was history. You see, in each case of my story, I was reminded of the importance of fellowship with other believers. It wasn't a group of pastors that drew me back into the church, but it was the people, God's people, those who were unashamed of him and unafraid to speak truth into my life, but in a loving and gentle way. Over the next year, all of these people became dear friends of mine. Through these brothers and sisters, I met more fellow believers in our office and developed some deep relationships with them. The young lady, Sarah, eventually graced me with the honor of becoming my wife. And my life has never been the same, and for the better. All because God reminded me that his people, his bride, although imperfect, can still be the greatest example of grace and love the world has ever known, if only we open our hearts to humbly allow God to speak to us through them, to remind us that we are not alone. I pray that this message today has been an encouragement to you. If you need help finding a local congregation in your area to plug into, write to us and I will help you. You can reach out from our website at wildernesswanderings.org. Join us next week as we wrap up this study of God's reminders for those wandering in the wilderness. Until then, this is David Nolan reminding you to always keep your eyes on the sun and wonder through the wonder of God's grace. Have a great day.